Please open your Bibles this morning to Mark 7. Mark 7. Our pastor needed to be away this weekend, so I have the privilege of bringing God's Word from this Gospel. And uh, we'll be looking at Mark 7, verses 1 through 13 this morning. Uh, But the passage really extends all the way down through verse 23. And Lord willing, we'll be looking at the latter portion on Tuesday. So it's a two-part message. You'll have to come back on Tuesday uh, to hear hear the second part. But as we uh, dig into God's Word here this morning, just a, a brief word of introduction about what is happening in the life of Christ at this point. Jesus' ministry is transitioning away from the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee, and he's moving southward uh, toward Perea and Judea, and then ultimately to Jerusalem. But as he moves away, what is taking place, there's a growing cleavage between Christ and the religious leaders in Galilee in particular. Back in chapter 3, they've already declared their intent that they're looking for a way to destroy him, and they despise his authority because it undermines their facade of righteousness and their fake worship. And so in what we're going to read here this morning, I'm going to read the whole passage, what we see is that Jesus is dealing with this facade very directly and he's exposing the problem. The problem is that they are, as he says in Matthew, whitewashed tombs who are covering the deadness of their soul and the filthiness of their heart. It's a very sobering passage, and yet it is an absolutely necessary passage as we see the glory of Christ exposing the filthiness of our hearts so that ultimately the one who has been designated, the one who has been appointed to be our righteousness, the one who's been appointed as the, 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 the one to pay the penalty for our sins, Jesus Christ is acknowledged for who he is. But for us to see who Christ is, to understand the, the glorious perfection of his righteousness and the absolute necessity of his death for sinners on the cross. We need to be confronted with the hypocrisy, with the filthiness of our own hearts. And so in this passage that we will look at in the next two times that we gather together, we're confronted with that sobering reality out of mercy. Mercy toward us from the Lord to lead us to Christ, to exalt in the salvation that we have in our Savior. So let's read, beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 7. Now the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. And they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. 
And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the, of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they, they defile a person. I want to ask you a question this morning. Does it matter to God how you worship Him? Does it matter how you worship Him? What kind of worship does God accept? Ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, sinners have attempted to approach God with a covering, a covering that covers the shame of their sinfulness, a covering that is man-made, a covering that is made of man-determined offerings. Adam and Eve attempted to cover themselves with fig leaves because they were ashamed. Israel attempted to worship God with the golden calf in Exodus 32. Saul in 1 Samuel 
Chapter 15 offered sacrifices in place of obedience. Throughout Scripture, man attempts to come to God in his own way. And by way of introduction, turn back to the passage in 1 Samuel. Keep your hand there in Mark 7, but I would like us to look at 1 Samuel 15 as it sets the context the framework for what we're examining here in Mark 7. It's important to see the harmony of Scripture and how the Lord has organized His Word to teach us about ourselves and lead us to Him. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul has disobeyed God's Word given to him through Samuel, and Samuel confronts him about the disobedience to God's Word, Samuel says, well, I kept, I kept some of the good stuff because I was, was going to offer it to God. And this is what Samuel says in verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. What happened? Samuel said, I disobeyed God, I did things on my own, but it was so I could worship God. Or Saul said that. And Samuel said, Nope. That worship doesn't count, because when you reject God's Word, you're sinning against God no matter how many ways you come up with to try to compensate for your sin without taking responsibility for your sin. You've set aside the Word of God, and God has set aside you, Saul, from being king. Your sacrifices are worthless. When we come back to Mark chapter 7, what we find is that the Pharisees and the scribes had institutionalized fake worship. They'd institutionalized a worship that was man-made and that was man-determined. And we'll fill that out as we go this morning. But essentially, fake worship, worship that God does not accept, a facade of righteousness. Fake worship externalizes religion. It externalizes religion and bypasses the true spiritual condition of the filthy heart. Again, look at the passage and see what the concern of the scribes and Pharisees is in verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then down in verse 5, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the fathers, but eat with defiled hands? You see what their concern is? Their concern is that there is defilement. But Jesus says, you need not be concerned about the defilement of the hands. What you need to be concerned about is the defilement of the heart. That's what God is concerned about. 
And, and Pharisees and crowd and disciples, what you need to understand is that defilement is not an issue of what comes in with unwashed hands, with ceremonially unclean hands. The cause of defilement is with you all the time because it's your heart. That's what you need to deal with. And if you don't deal with the heart, if you simply externalize religion and bypass the true spiritual condition of, the fil- of, of your filthy heart, you're being like Saul. You're offering worship that is unacceptable to God. As Christ is preaching the gospel, which is what we're told He does, in chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, as he preaches the gospel, that's his ministry declaring the kingdom of God is near. You need to repent and believe the gospel. The king is coming. Kiss the sun. He preaches the gospel and he calls people to repent. At the same time, he's exposing the fake worship of those who refuse to repent. And that is the root of fake worship. It's a resistance to the convicting power of the Word of God and the call to acknowledge your sin before a holy God and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And those who refuse to repent, who refuse to understand the the, the fullness of their sinfulness, create a facade of righteousness and a worship that is fake and unacceptable to God. This is the core of the passage when Jesus says in verse 7, in vain, in vain do they worship me. Their worship is empty. Why? Because they teach as doctrines the commandment of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. You're compensating instead of confessing. John MacArthur says, as the Old Testament repeatedly declares, the only worship that pleases God is that which flows from a heart that sincerely loves Him and seeks to obey His Word. But religious people who refuse to repent build false systems of worship. Fake worship, like we're seeing here in this passage, fake worship like this, attacks Scripture. It's not neutral. It attacks Scripture with man-made ritual, and fake worship attacks God's Word with self-determined sacrifices. And it does so in a very good-looking and conservative garb. Paul, in Romans chapter 2, in verse 5, indicts such people as those with hard and impenitent hearts and people for whom the wrath of God is stored up. In other words, religion that is devoted to fake worship is as soul-damning. It is as soul-damning as heinous outward immorality in the eyes of God. It's idolatry. And so what we're considering today from God's Word is the pharisaical tendency in all of us, right? Let's, we, we can spend a lot of time pointing out a lot of places out there 
But let's, let's bring it right down to where it needs to get to in our own hearts and minds today. We're considering the Pharisaical tendency in all of us toward hypocrisy. Pretending to be something that we're not. Pretending to offer God what we think pleases Him, what we think will put us in good standing instead of what He says. Coming to Him on His terms. And it's critical for us to understand this reality that people can look good and they can sound good, they can sound very religious while being deceived and deceiving others with soul-damning lies, which is precisely what the Pharisees and scribes had an entire system to do. The Pharisees' response to Christ is a response of those with hardened hearts who hear the preaching of the gospel and, fo- and refuse to repent. And as the Son of Man moves among mankind, His glorious, perfect presence exposes the hearts of mankind. And, and we need to think about, as we, as we go through this passage and listen to Christ's words, here He is on earth and He's exposing this false, fake religion How much more in the day when He returns, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's coming a day when every heart will be exposed for what it is. And so it is the mercy of God to us that we have this account of Christ's ministry on earth dealing with the hypocritical, pharisaical heart so that, that as Dane read to us and, and prayed for us this morning so that we can examine our hearts to know whether we're in the faith and prepare for that day when we'll stand before Christ and there will be nothing to hide behind. The passage before us this morning reveals three marks of fake worshipers. As Christ exposes fake worship, we have three marks before us this morning. First is the reality that fake worshipers defy Christ. Fake worshipers defy Christ. And then in verses 6 through 8, we'll find that fake worshipers depart from Scripture And finally, at the end, as Jesus gives an example, we'll see that fake worshipers develop fake righteousness. Fake worshipers defy Christ, and fake worshipers depart from Scripture, and fake worshipers develop fake righteousness. So let's look this morning, first of all, that fake worshipers defy Christ. Again, what we're seeing here in verses 1 and 2 is the Pharisees and scribes gather around Christ, and notice that some of these scribes had come up from Jerusalem. So these are, you know, these are the big time professionals. Word of Christ had gotten around the whole country, and now the scribes are coming up here to northern Galilee, and and they're, they're exercising surveillance on Christ. They don't like what's happening here. He's disturbing their, their 
system. He's disturbing their comfort. And back in chapter 3, after there were five questions that had come up before Christ, at the end of that section, began in in chapter 2 and ran through the first part of chapter 3, we're told in verse 6 that the Pharisees went out immediately and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So Mark's already told us what the mindset is of the Pharisees and scribes. They're after Christ. They're trying to destroy him because he is authoritatively applying the law and the implications of the law to their hearts, and they, they hate him for it. In fact, in verse 22 of chapter 3, the scribes, again, came down from Jerusalem, and they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Now, that was an important indictment because the Pharisees and the scribes held absolute sway over the spiritual life of Israel in that day. And their authority was being challenged by the authority of Christ, and then they're seeking to destroy Christ by undermining his authority, by, by saying that the power that he exercises is a power derived from hell. They're blaspheming. But let's consider the, the significance of, of what's happening here. A man by the name of Shur has written a very helpful a study on the life of Israel in the time of Christ. And he says this about the scribes. In Jesus' day, it was no longer the priests, but the scribes who were the zealous guardians of the law. Hence, they were also from that time, talking about the Hellenization of the priest, from that time onwards, the real teachers of the people over whose spiritual life They, the scribes, bore complete sway. The scribes then formed a firmly compacted class in undisputed possession of a spiritual supremacy over the people. These were the professionals. These were the people who knew the law inside and out, and their word about the law was law to the people. They had an undisputed possession of spiritual supremacy over the people. The Pharisees, the Pharisees, and you you had scribes that were generally Pharisees, occasionally Sadducees. Try not to get too far in the weeds here. It's fascinating stuff, but I have a lot of notes here too to get through today. The Pharisees were, were the conservative group of Christ's day. The, the Sadducees were the aristocrats, the, the Herodians, the ones that went after political clout. And, and scribes could be of either party, but typically they, were, they aligned themselves with, with the Pharisees, the more conservative group who actually had a very high view of the Scripture. But the Pharisees distinguished themselves by their scrupulous attention to ceremonial cleanliness. Remember, they're trying to figure out a way to come before God in an undefiled manner. 
The distinction was not simply between even them and the heathen. The distinction in Pharisees' mind was between them and most Jews who were viewed to live in ceremonial defilement. The, the Pharisees were called the separatists. They, they sought to distinguish themselves by their scrupulous uh, care to follow every possible implication of the law of God. And so they had the bulk of the nation as their ally. They had the greatest influence upon the congregations so that all acts of public worship, prayers, and sacrifices were performed according to their injunctions. All right, think about that. The scribes and the Pharisees, they have complete sway so that even how people pray is dictated by these groups. Their sway over the masses was so absolute that they could obtain a hearing even when they said anything against the king or the high priest. Consequently, they were the most capable of counteracting the designs of the kings. And folks, now, now they were confronted with the king of kings. Right? This is not just a piece of information thrown in Mark's gospel. This is setting up the stage for what's going to happen when they crucify Christ. These people had power over the masses. They had a spiritual authority, and now Christ is coming in, and he's saying things like, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who can speak against kings and be heard, and now this man, this man is undoing their righteousness. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, the, the crowds are amazed. Why? Because Jesus spoke with authority. He is the King of kings. He is the Son of God. His authority is greater than Caesar. His authority is greater than the Pharisees. His authority is greater than the scribes. And so this is a a showdown of epic proportions. And what's at stake? Well, hand washing. Scribes and Pharisees and their surveillance. Remember, they were surveilling the disciples back in chapter 3 about Sabbath laws. Oh, they, they picked the grain, they threshed the grain, they ate the grain, they've broken the law all over the place. And Jesus said, you missed the point. And besides that, I'm the king because I made the Sabbath. And now your disciples don't wash their hands. Now, he's not talking about washing your hands to be clean. You know, so children don't use this passage and say, well, I don't need to wash my hands before I eat because Jesus condemned the Pharisees for saying the disciples need... That's the wrong application, okay? This is a ceremonial cleansing that was part of the whole religious system. It involved pouring water over your hands with your fingers up, and it had to go at least down to your wrist. 
And then you would put your hands down and pour water over your hands with your fingers down. And then once your hands were cleansed, you had to rub your hands and dry them with your fist because if you grabbed a towel, then you would defile your hands again because the towel wasn't cleansed. Right? This is the, the kind of hand washing that they're, they're talking about. In fact, again, quoting sure, and it's important to kind of you know, get an idea of what's taking place here because it really is unfamiliar to us. But when we understand the, the historical context of what's happening, then we start to see where the points of connection are in our own hearts. Sure says this, it was needful that the hands should always have water poured on them before eating. Then it was fully discussed from what vessels such, such, such pouring should take place, what water was suitable for it, who might pour it, and how far, the ha- how far down the hands it must be poured. And so when we see the parentheses in verse 3, look there at chapter 7, verse 3, It says that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. You say, why why do you have all of these things that you're talking about? Well, Well, think about it. Let me just put it in a modern context. One of the responsibilities I have at home is a, it's a really hard responsibility. Every night I have to set up the coffee maker to make sure that we have fresh coffee in the morning. And I don't have to, you know, in my sleep, stumble around and put decaf in instead of the real stuff. So I set up the coffee maker. Well, to do this in a Jewishly kosher manner, be like, okay, so are the filters clean? How do I clean the filters? How do I clean the things that I clean the filters with? How do I clean the coffee grounds? How do I clean the grinder that I grind the coffee grounds in? How do I clean the thing that I clean the grinder with that I grind the coffee grinds in, beans in? And I can't even keep it straight in my own mind yet, right? I'm, I'm all, it's a simple thing. How, how do I cleanse the, the coffee maker? How do I? That was the way they thought. Well, if the hands have to be cleansed, then the thing that cleanses the hands have to be cleansed, and the the bowl that you use to pour over the hands, that also needs to be cleansed. And you can see it's just an it's an infinite labyrinth of impossibility. When Mark records that they hold to the tradition of the elders, right? We see this pop up multiple times. The tradition of the elders. What is he talking about? Well, the scribes and Pharisees adhered to an oral tradition that began with the law, but would take the law and extrapolate all the possible ways that the law could be defiled. And they would, they would talk and talk and talk. I mean, all day long, it would be like, well, I mean, okay, I guess we have to, we have to dunk the couches, if we're really going to follow God and keep from, from defiling ourselves with sin. It was all tradition, again, beginning with what God said in the law, but externalized, externalized in a form of fake worship. 
And so they had this system set up, and when the scribes and Pharisees said, okay, now here's the application. When you wash your hands, the the pitcher needs to be cleansed, and the bowl needs to be cleansed, and, and you need to sprinkle some water on whatever the fountain that, that the water comes from. Well, then to the people, that was law. That was righteousness. That's what you did. That stood. And so when Jesus, a man of growing popularity, a man of recognized authority, a man who was casting out demons, a man who was healing lepers, a man who was calming storms, a man who was feeding thousands with five loaves and two fish. When he comes and his followers do not wash their hands, their entire system is under attack because the people are recognizing this man is unique. And he's not following the system of the scribes and the Pharisees. This record then is a malicious attempt to undermine Christ based on extra biblical ceremonial tradition. Your disciples don't wash their hands. And the significance of that was by calling into question the actions of the disciples, they were calling into question the orthodoxy of Christ because he was their master. They were defying Christ. They were defying Christ on the basis of their oral tradition, on the basis of extra-biblical ceremonial tradition. And folks, that's ultimately... Ultimately, fake worshipers, when they're confronted with the authority and with the glory of Christ, that they are confronted with a decision, will I bow before the Son of God or will I cling to my own sense of self-righteousness? Fake worshipers defy Christ, and they defy Christ how? By elevating meaningless rituals. By elevating external rituals. And I have kind of a grocery list of how this can very subtly creep into our thinking. Here's some things. Folks, sometimes our family traditions, we can make such a big deal of them and, and make them a spiritual thing. That's dangerous. Sometimes we can take national holidays and make them a spiritual thing. That's dangerous. It's dangerous to, to equate a nation as God's chosen people. Christian nationalism is dangerous. Theonomy is dangerous. We could bring it into more subtle, subtle realms. A demand for passionate Christianity is different. Well, uh, is dangerous. Well, well, you're not passionate enough. I want people that have passion. Give me a break. What about the truth? 
not about passion. It's about what God says. A formula of worship that corresponds to worldly patterns. Oh, we need to get people in. We need to give them what they like. The idea of a consumer mentality, that the consumer is always right. Folks, all of these things are are external points of, of worshiping what is imposed upon us by society or by tradition, and it's wrong and it's heinous in the eyes of God when worship of God is dictated by things that are outside of the Word of God. Even reshaping the gospel invitation away from repentance and into a decision that you make on your own apart from the regenerating power of Christ is is idolatry of the gospel. It's an adulteration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It externalizes religion. It puts you in control of making your own self-determined sacrifices to be before God, and God hates it. He says it's like divination, and it's like witchcraft. People defy Christ. Fake worshipers defy Christ by externalizing, by binding consciences, and by promoting excessive ceremonial tradition that has nothing to do with the revealed word of Christ. And that then comes out with a criticism of Christ's followers by questioning the liberty of those in Christ. This will be an ongoing issue even as the church is formed. We don't have time or Today isn't the day to go through the the passages in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and Colossians 2 and 1 Timothy 4 where this kind of externalism had crept into the church and was corrupting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any form of checklist Christianity maintains the spirit of the Pharisees a checklist Christianity that demands you to perform certain rituals and assesses your relationship with God based on the performance of those duties, that's pharisaical thinking. It's living by the tradition of the elders and not by the revelation of God. And one of the ways that we can see in our own hearts and examine our own hearts, whether we tend to fall into this, and and we all do at some point, some way. Do we make false comparisons with other people? Well, I read my Bible today, did you? It's checklist Christianity. Do you make baseless accusations? Right? Are you always looking around and, and looking at other people to justify your own standing before God? That's what the Pharisees and scribes were doing. It was, it was a, a religion that was comparative among other people. It was not vertically aligned with the holiness and the righteousness of God. And when the God-man came down, and exposed the pharisaical heart, the fake worshipers defied Christ. Fake worship defies Christ. Jesus deals with this then. Let's look at verse 6. 
He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the traditions of men. Jesus says, when you externalize worship, when you ritualize worship, when you make tradition and checklist a a part of your acceptance with God and a part of your worship, you are setting aside the revelation of God. And fake worship, as it defies Christ, it departs from Scripture. It elevates tradition above Scripture while pretending to obey Scripture, and it's the epitome of hypocrisy. Hypocrites hypocrites are people who hide behind a mask. They put a mask up that looks good, but behind it is corruption. And the departure from Scripture reflects a heart condition. Look at verse 6. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's the very definition of hypocrisy. Words. Oh, I love God. I love the people of God. I, I... Words. And that's all they are. Words that honor God with a heart that is far from God. And so, because of that, because of a heart condition where the heart is far from God, departing from Scripture empties worship of its real value. You can say whatever you want, but if your heart hasn't been dealt with by the revelation of God, if you haven't bowed to God, if you, if you are a person who's repenting of sin and, and running to Christ, your worship is invalid. It's vain because it's not according to the Word of God. True worship is rooted in and responds to Scripture. It is rooted in and responds to Scripture. And the embrace of man-made traditions, even when it's said, well, it's up to the level of Scripture, is a departure from Scripture. Jesus says, by embracing your man-made traditions, by embracing the oral tradition and making that the measure of spirituality, you are leaving, you're departing, you're setting aside the commandment of God and putting in its place the tradition of man. So when you stand before God, what are you going to stand on? Are you going to stand on the tradition of man or are you going to stand on the word of God? Jesus tells us what the tradition of man is like. It's like a house on a beach, and it's going to collapse. It will go down. We have to recognize that embracing and elevating man-made tradition to the same authority as Scripture is to set aside the very Word of God. Now, a clarification. Let's, let's not in any way, shape, or form confuse that when someone sets aside the Word of God, the Word of God loses its authority. It de- never does. Psalm 119, 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in heaven. 
God's word is always authoritative, no matter whether or not I believe it or not. My belief does not give God's word authority. It is authoritative. My unbelief in the authority of God is simply destructive to my own soul. And I'll be held accountable according to what God has said. My eternity, my eternity is rooted in whether or not I receive what God has said. When the authority of Scripture is dismissed, it is impossible. It is impossible to truly worship God. Jesus said in John, in John 4.23, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And in John 17.17, 17, he said this as he prayed in his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross. He prayed for his disciples and he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. True worshipers, are you following? True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Well, what is truth? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's impossible to truly worship God when the authority of Scripture is set aside. And so, you know, let's step back and see the progression of what's happening here. The Pharisees and the scribes, they, they come to Jesus and they confront Jesus and they say, your disciples don't wash their hands. Shame, shame, shame. And Jesus says, you don't worship God. You've set aside his commandment. What's more important? Once the authority of Scripture is set aside, once the authority of Scripture is set aside, every kind of subjective thinking becomes valid. Every kind of subjective thinking becomes valid. The objective truth of what God has revealed of what God has revealed that pleases him is, is nullified, it's set aside, it's canceled the moment human tradition is elevated to the same level. And so it opens the gate for the flood of subjective thinking, and the de devil delights in this deception. Fake worship does not need, it does not need to deny the existence of God. It doesn't need to deny God. It doesn't even need to deny the inerrancy of Scripture. Folks, there are people that will hold to the inerrancy of Scripture and yet deny the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. False worshipers can hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. The scribes and the Pharisees, they loved the Scripture. They devoted themselves to the Scripture. They studied the Scripture all the time. Folks, they knew more about the Scriptures probably than all of us in this room knew combined. And yet they departed from the Scripture by setting aside the authority of Scripture. Let me give us some examples of this kind of false worship, first from the Pharisees. Listen to the statement from their own tradition. Remember, Jesus says 
You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. That was a radical statement. That was a radical statement in the first century in Israel. Why? Well, listen to the summary of scribal, of the scribal and Pharisaic position. He who interprets scripture in opposition to tradition has no part in the world to come. That's their own words. Let me read it again. He who interprets Scripture in opposition to tradition has no part in the world to come. Jesus said, you set aside the Word of God by your loyalty to tradition. He was dealing with this heresy. Again, listen to the Pharisees. It is more culpable to teach contrary to the precepts of the scribes than to teach contrary to the Torah or to the law itself. They put the teaching of the scribes, the oral tradition of the scribes, at a level and said, if you teach against the oral tradition of the scribes, you're more culpable than if you contradicted the very word of God itself. And so when Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of man in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, he was culpable as a heretic and as an apostate from Judaism because they had set aside the word of God. And this false religion, this false way of thinking continues to be perpetuated. Let me give you another example. Listen to the example of the Roman Catholic Church. This is taken from chapter 2, article 2, section 3, line 95 of the official Roman Catholic Catechism from the Vatican website. Here's their summary of Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. It is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. Working together, each in his own way, under the action of the one true Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls." And just again, so we're clear, what is he saying that all contribute and that are all authority? The tradition, the scripture, and the magisterium that consist of the Pope and those authorized under the authority of the Pope. It's the tradition of man. And folks, God's indictment against that statement, which is exactly parallel to what the Pharisees believed, God's indictment is in the words of Christ. You leave the commandment of God. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. I need to be calm here. This is important. Folks, this is eternity. When you allow, when you allow the smallest hardened point of unbelief 
concerning the absolute authority of scriptures to gain a foothold, you've denied the word of God in whole. There's no room for it in the church of Jesus Christ. There's no room for it in the church of the one who said, if you leave the commandment of God, or if you hold the tradition of man, you've left the commandment of God. You've canceled God's word. It is unconscionable. It is unconscionable that we would have a sympathy in any way, shape, or form for what Christ has condemned, for what God has condemned, and, what, and the kind of thinking that Christ came to deliver us from when he died for our sins. There's another example. There's another example of setting aside God's word and it probably hits closer to home. And, you know, these are just examples. We could, we could spend all day just example after example. I'm just giving us a sample. Another example is from professing Christians in the West. How do professing Christians in the West leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of man? Well, by words like this. It comes out in these words, God spoke to me. But then in brackets, and what God said to me in my heart is more important than what God has already said in his inspired word. I can't tell you how often I've heard that as an excuse for setting aside God's word. Well, God, God spoke to me. Yes, he did. And can I read to you the passage that contradicts what you're telling me God so-called spoke to you about? You're setting aside the Word of God. Or another way, I know it's God's will to fill in the blank, do something in the future. Well, James says, I'm going to live if it's God's will. In other words, I don't even know if it's God's will that I'm going to be alive tomorrow. So how can I know it's God's will for me to do something in the future? Did God reveal that to me? Folks, what I'm doing is I'm essentially saying I have revelation from God. I have a tradition in my own mind and heart that is, that is substantiating some whim of what I want to do. Now, God's will, 1 Thessalonians 4, is that you flee from sexual immorality. God's will is that you live in thanksgiving to God. God's will is that you rejoice always, that you make no provision for the flesh. All right, let's, let's focus on what God has revealed as, as being his will, and then we make wise decisions and trust in God's guidance. But folks, when we claim that I know God's will about something in the future, I'm, I'm elevating human tradition to what God has revealed as authoritative in his word. I don't know that. I don't even know if I'm going to be alive. How can I know what's going to be a week out or a month out or a year out? We need to think seriously about these things because fake worship departs from Scripture. It elevates man's tradition and sets aside God's word. 
We're not talking about Satan worshiping. We're not talking about death cults. We're talking about conservatives. And Jesus says, if you, make, if you place anything man-made equal to Scripture, whether it's cultural tradition, religious dogma, or even a personal whim that sanitized with God told me, you have rejected and voided the authority of the Word of God. We've exchanged truth for personal opinion and preference. And that puts us in a really vulnerable position. Now we have to come up with some kind of righteousness of our own. Because essentially we've set aside the righteousness of God. And so, in the last portion, fake worshipers do develop their own righteousness. Jesus says in verse eight, verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He's, he's not pulling any punches, is he? Look, Jesus, Jesus stood up to error and he called it out. You're rejecting the word of God. I'm going to point out exactly how you do it, exactly how you're manipulating the word of God and twisting the scriptures. And here's what he says. God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. That's God's word. That's the moral law. That's the natural, uh, the natural law at work in the revealed law of God. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have, from, have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus you make void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. A counterfeit religion has to invent counterfeit practices. And when God's word, when scripture is set aside, righteousness becomes relative. Objective truth is replaced by subjective speculation and inconsistent applications. And Jesus makes that clear here. What he's dealing with is a Jewish provision for a kind of deferred giving. Someone could arrange for their property to go into the temple when they die. That's what it means, Corbin. I've dedicated this to God. When I die, it, it goes into the temple. And when they made that vow, no, no one could access that because it was, it was given to God. No one could benefit from it. Now, they could draw from it. The person who made the vow could draw from it during their lifetime, but there could be no other beneficiaries. And so the Jews would dedicate their property in this way and then refuse to carry out moral obligations to care for their parents. They placed this tradition above revelation and they nullified God's command. And so even, even in, a, in a rash moment where, where a son maybe was frustrated with his parents and he, and he knew the moral obligation, but to get back to his parents, he would say, ah, what I have is Corbin. The Pharisees and scribes would come in and say, ah, you got it, that, that's ours now. That comes to the temple when you die. 
And even though you made that vow in a rash moment of frustration against your parents, you can't go back upon that. You can't go back upon that and fulfill your moral obligation. The the relative vow that you made supplants the moral obligation of God's law. You've set aside the law of God with your tradition. You've elevated something relative above what is revealed. And human tradition replaces revelation with relativism constantly. It undermines authority with ingenuity, and it falsely salves the conscience while condemning the soul. So a person would leave and say, well, I'm keeping my vow to God while I'm disobeying the law of God. No, that's a fake righteousness. It's a fake righteousness that's ignored the defilement of your heart. You have no standing with God. Fake righteousness must develop, a, or fake religion, fake worship has to develop a fake righteousness. Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're almost done here this morning. Colossians chapter 2. Paul is exalting the preeminence of Christ in this wonderful book. And in verses 16 through 23 in Colossians Two, he's dealing with some false thinking that has crept into the church. And so he says this, because of what you are in Christ, because of the preeminence of Christ, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch? referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting a self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is dealing with the pharisaical attitude that had crept into the church in Colossae. All of these external things that had created a false sense of security, a false righteousness, and a fake worship. So it's all man-made. And it was to the neglect of the soul. If you run your eyes down to chapter 3, verse 5, as Paul reminds us of who we are in Christ, that we need to keep our minds on things above, he does remind us, look, Put to death what is earthly in you. 
not outside of you, in you. And then he lists those things. New life in Christ is a life that deals with the inside. It's a life that, as MacArthur, I quoted from MacArthur, it's a life that is devoted to a sincere love of God from the inside and worships God according to what he has revealed in his word. Ultimately, in contrast, fake worship refuses to deal with the filthy heart. And that's what we're going to look at on Tuesday is the filthy heart. Now nobody's going to come. Instead of calling for repentance, fake worship tries to establish a righteousness apart from the holiness of God and the righteousness of Christ. It is a failed system that brings damnation because it insulates us from Christ. The one, as Hebrews 5, 9, and 10 says, he was made perfect and he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Folks, what we need, what we need is a designated redeemer. Not one that we came up with, but one that God designated. And that is Christ. And it's only as Christ exposes our wickedness that we turn to Christ in repentance and in faith for the forgiveness of sins. Have you turned to him? Or are you wearing a facade of false righteousness? Oh, turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins and acceptance with God. Father, we thank you for our Savior, Christ. Christ, we thank you for coming to die for us. We thank you for the clarity of your teaching while you were on this earth and as you prepared to offer up yourself on our behalf. We worship you and we adore you and we love you. And oh, we look forward to your return. Help us now as we sing praises to you that our praise would be a true and genuine response of the work that you have done in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.